everybody, welcome back to The Smattering, where we ask the important questions about investing. I got it the first time, Jeff Santoro. Voice you nailed people. it. Nailed it. I'm nailed Jason it. Hall, here with Jeff. We've got a fun show planned today, but before we do that, Jeff, let's, um, you know what? I'm going to tell the people the name of the show, Running Towards a Fire. Running Towards a Fire, or Running Toward Fires. We'll figure it out before we yeah, publish screwed it. screwed something up. I had to screw something up in the intro. That's... That's that's the key. That's the key. I'm looking forward to this because there have been so many hot takes on the internet the last couple of weeks with all the banking stuff. And you mean the banking crisis? Have, it's not a crisis, which we're not going to debate on this podcast. But there's been so many hot takes, and you and I have had so many sort of side text conversations about it that I'm happy to actually talk about not the banking crisis necessarily or lack thereof, but more about when you should run toward a fire in the world of investing and when you shouldn't. So that's what we're, that's what we're going to focus on today. But before we do that, we want to thank everyone who's been listening religiously to our show over the past half a year-ish. And we want to just ask that you continue to share share the show with your friends, uh, rate it, review it. We really, it. We're really looking to grow the show. We want more people to find it. We want more people to be part of our conversations, You know, come up with the answers to the questions we talk about. So if you could help us by spreading the word, giving us ratings and reviews, those really help. That helps the algorithm pitch us to a new audience. And you can check out our YouTube channel too and subscribe there. So do those things. We really appreciate it. And uh, all right, let's talk, uh, let's talk the fires that we should be running toward, Jason. Where do you want to start? I, I want to start with kind of the background for this, this show that we're doing. People that have been listening for a while, they know that you know, I'm a relatively seasoned investor. I've started really focusing on buying individual stocks, long-term buy and hold around 2006, maybe early 2007. So I've been through a few real house fires. I've been through a few major crises, been through a, one of the longest sustainable markets in US stock market history. And I've, I've kind of learned a little bit about how th these these mini crises can create opportunity, but they can also be really, really dangerous. And I thought after you and I talked a little bit about what's going on in the banking industry, that it would be this is a good opportunity to to kind of talk through that. And what was interesting about this particular situation we're going through with all the banking is it could be both of those things. It could be, a fire you don't want to run toward if you go in one sort of direction towards it. But it also presented a whole lot of opportunities that you may want to run toward if you have exposure to the banking sector. So that that's one thing that I thought was interesting about this particular moment, you know, different than previous crises where like everything was sort of falling apart. This was contained to a certain sector and a certain se section of that sector. But there were some opportunities that that you could have taken advantage of over the last couple of weeks for sure. Yeah, I think so. So let's let's start with with this current moment in time, Jeff, because it's still ongoing. But I want to unpack it for people that really haven't paid a lot of attention and don't really know everything that's happened. The, the short version, everything that's going on with banking. And let's think about, and this is something, I think I texted this to you, but I can't remember if I texted to you or said it to you, Jeff. Nobody ever buys a house in a neighborhood when there's a house actively on fire in that neighborhood, Right. But generally, that's probably a reasonably decent time to to be looking around. 
is when there is massive uncertainty and there's risk and there's there's been a thousand quotes that have been written about this sort of thing. Um, the point is that generally when there is fear and uncertainty, that's almost always the best time to act when you have capital that you can put to work in a reasonably permanent way, right? To get through whatever that crisis is, to get to everything returning to normal and people are no longer voting with fear and they're measuring value and, and, and you can, you can make a lot of money. And this, that's where I felt like, because I was just starting to invest in individual stocks for the very first, like literally weeks when the, when the, we had our last big crisis, which was the pandemic. Right. So I was just doing whatever I was doing. It didn't, didn't, had had no logic at that point. Right. You I had, felt like you I had was, started, you had started buying individual, you started picking stocks in early 2020. Right. Like literally a few weeks before the pandemic started, like mid February. Right. But this time I felt a little bit more prepared. So I knew enough that there was a problem with bank within the banking sector. I understood what was going on with Silicon Valley Bank and, and some of the other ones, but I was also seeing banks in my portfolio that had nothing to do with it, just taking residual damage, right? And getting knocked down. And I ended up buying some of them over the course of the last couple of weeks, but it was only because I already owned them. I knew them pretty well. And I had read enough and learned enough to know that at least as far as I could tell in that moment. You had you had enough understanding be... to reasonably predict right. that they and were they were relatively protected from everything that was happening with Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, with their massive exposure to companies that had more money deposited than the FDIC would insure. Exactly. And I didn't back up the truck just in case there was some piece of this I was missing and didn't know. The point the point I'm trying to make though is what I didn't do and what I don't think would have been the wise thing to do is just blindly say bank stocks are down and buying bank stocks. Right. Right. Like that, that was what I felt prepared for was these were companies I already owned and I knew, and I wasn't just like Googling bank stocks, finding tickers. Oh, it's down 80%. I'm going to buy it. Right. Which I think is what some people do when they see the fire because they think like, Oh, now's the time. So there, I just want to make that distinction, right? Like, there's a there is a time to sort of run towards the thing that everyone's running away from, but you have to do it with some knowledge behind you. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I want to I want to put a little more emphasis on exactly what you said there, and I think it's really important with something like banks because you know we've had John Maxfield come on the show who probably knows more than bank about banks than the half dozen other experts that I know in banks combined. Right, it's just such a deep knowledge center, and then talking to Jacob Goldstein last week, who's done deep research into the U.S. financial system and the reality that the way everything is in, everything is magnified with banks, literally everything is magnified with banks. And as much as people look at the, the, the debt securities they own, the mortgages, all of that stuff, those are assets. The liability for bank is deposits, Right. And we learned that the hard way this week, that painful reminder over the past two weeks, that it doesn't matter how good the assets a bank holds, if its biggest liability, which is its deposits, which is its customers, don't feel safe, right? If they don't feel safe, nothing else about your bank matters. Yeah. And that was that was John Maxfield's basic 
thesis of our whole conversation, right? Like capital's not king, confidence is king. And I and I I like what you just said about thinking of deposits as liabilities on the balance sheet. Like that's something I never thought of either. But when yeah. you take I mean, a step they literally back, are. You look on the yeah. balance sheet, they're under liabilities, right? For yeah, a reason. But you never think of it that way, right? right. You don't ever yeah. think of it as like because liability, you know, that it just has a different I don't know. I never thought of them this right. that way. In, I know that's in, where they in, are. In but. the common in common language, liability doesn't we don't always think about it the same thing. But on a balance sheet, this is your toolbox. Write this down, kids. A liability is something a business owes to somebody else. That's what it is, right? And the deposit is the money that you owe back to your depositors, right? So yeah. yeah so that's important, right? And and but a couple things I want to mention too, Jeff, I think are really important is it's just this was has been such a reminder that crises, crashes, and panics, they often happen really fast. And they kind of sometimes feel like they come out of nowhere, right? When we're going through them. After the facts, hindsight bias always creeps in. And there's always, always somebody that kind of knew, right? You think about what happened in the global financial crisis. What's the, the, the book that was made into the movie? You got to help me out here. The Big Short? Yeah. So the big short, right? These were some people that obviously saw something, right? But it was a handful of people, right? Of the millions and millions of of participants in the market and people that are involved in the financial system, a tiny group of people actually saw it. It's a rounding error to nobody, right? That sees these things coming in advance. And we know now with, with Silicon Valley Bank, there were people that were short Silicon Valley Bank that saw its balance sheet tied to its depositors as a, as a risk, right? And and they turned out turned out that they were correct. But the point is that these things can kind of come out of nowhere. And here's the funny thing about it too is something else I've mentioned before and this is always important to remember as an investor is regulators and investors and people in general, humans, we kind of always fight the last battle. We're always looking at the thing that just caused the most harm always looking over our shoulder at that thing and looking ahead to make sure we've done everything to keep that thing from happening. And then absolutely something else comes out of nowhere. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have, you know, a regional bank crisis on my dance card for 2023. I didn't have a pandemic on my 2020 dance card. Now, in fairness, my wife, who's a biochemist and did her research in infectious disease has been telling me literally for years that, a pandemic is, was going to be inevitable in our lifetime. It was just, it was going to happen. I didn't, I wasn't ready for it any more than anybody else. Same thing. Look back at the financial crisis, you know, 15 years ago now at this point, really when the seeds that were planted really began to finally start to sprout. Again, besides that handful of people that were talked about and, and portrayed in the big short, this wasn't something that the vast majority of the planet was even remotely planning or prepared for. And and just to drive the point home, and then I want to kind of talk about how we could, you know, prepare ourselves for the things we can't see, right? But to drive that point home, you know, now anytime there's anything with banks or housing, everyone's like, oh, is this another great recession? And I, I guarantee you the next time there's some sort of infectious disease outbreak anywhere in the world, because remember, we never had the global pandemic, but we did have H1N1 and and SARS and the the bird flu, right? We had all these potential almosts. And now I guarantee you the next time there's one of those ones that God willing does not turn into a pandemic, everyone's going to think here's another pandemic because 
it we fight the last battle. So so one thing that I've been thinking about over the last couple of weeks as this banking thing happened, and it's partly because out of the 60 something stocks I own, I think I own four bank stocks, maybe five, something like that. So it's, you know, proportionally not a big part of my portfolio. But it made me think about, you know, going back to the toolbox we always talk about, you know, not putting any of your eggs in any particular basket, whether it's type of stock, asset class, whatever, you know, just in case something like this happens. And I think the other thing this particular situation showed me is that the banking industry is probably a little bit more of a risky, you know, place to invest than maybe some other sectors are because, you know, you like you said, it can happen quick. It can, any bank can have a bank run. There's not there's not a bank in the world that has enough money, you know, downstairs in the vault to give all of its depositors their money back. So, you know, it it made me feel like the banking sector is just a little bit more fragile than maybe I was thinking. And and I'm glad I didn't have too much exposure to it. I don't know what your thoughts are about that in terms of like how many bank stocks you should own or how many of any particular type of stock you should own. Yeah, I think, and again, it's, I'm, I'm going to kind of go back to, to what John was talking about, you know, comparing most commercial businesses to banks is like gravity. It's the difference is like gravity on the earth versus the moon for banks, right? Where banks have to fight to stay down because of access to capital can lead to the kinds of decisions that we saw with with Silicon Valley Bank. I want to mention First Republic Bank too here, Jeff, because this is one that it's the one that seems like it's the the, the it's continuing to carry over the so this is the another so regional bank. Um so mids it's a mid-sized bank. It really shouldn't be called a regional bank because they I mean they have locations on both coasts. They they really cater to high wealth individuals, mostly consumer banking, but they do business banking as well. And generally what you have is you have a business owner. Maybe they had a really successful real estate business or something like that. They're the, they're the bank for their business and also the, the private bank, the personal bank for that, for that person. And they've built a, a really, really strong, powerful banking, banking franchise. And they're very personal, very high touch. That's really attractive to high net wealth depositors but two, again, two thirds of its deposits are outside that FDIC limit, and it's gone through a run. And we've seen the eleven largest banks in the U.S. pull together thirty billion dollars and deposited into First Republic is trying to telegraph some confidence because they're, they're, the, those deposits are <laughs> uninsured. So they're trying to telegraph their support for the for the value and the quality of this business. But we see it continue to go. So. It, it gets back to exactly your point about banks being maybe more risky, certainly more risky than the average person thinks, because the environment that we've been through coming out of the financial crisis with much higher regulation, the stress testing that was done on so many more banks until just a few years ago when some of these mid-sized banks would have qualified for more rigorous regulation. Now they don't. I don't want to get into a partisan talk about regulation here, but the point is is because they're so leveraged and because depositor confidence, as we've learned, is been reminded, I should say, is so critically important. You should only own as many banks as you understand really, really well, <laughs> I think is the best way to think yeah. about it. And, and that's that's a good that's a good summation too of how I think you and I handled the last couple of weeks, exactly what you just said, right? So you were much more comfortable making I don't want to say huge bets, but larger size bets on 
specific banks that you knew well that you thought were sort of collateral damage in this whole thing. And I was taking very measured, smaller, like, well, this is how much I would normally have invested this week anyway, kind of sized bets into the into only one or two of the four or five banks that I own. So I think that brings up a, another kind of thing that I think we should talk through, which is it's really easy after the fire is out to say, oh, you should run towards the fire because that's where all the investing opportunities are. Yeah. It's a whole other thing. is really powerful. Well, it's, yeah, it's a whole other thing to actually run towards the active fire. So as you were, I, I just curious how, what your mindset was as this was all going on and it was like all the news all at once, like a fire hose. How did you navigate that and then ultimately make whatever, I don't, you don't have to get into the specific decisions you made, but like, how'd you navigate that stress and sort of do it in spite of the fact that you're running towards a fire? So I, I think part of it is that I tend to be pretty risk tolerant as a starting point, right? And and like I, I just I understand that about myself, having been through plenty of these type of situations before, seeing the volatility and 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 not letting it really phase me. I'll say I think that's that's a benefit, but also it can be. I mean, that can also be a fatal flaw for an investor, and I think it's important to understand that, and to have some frameworks to prevent you from making really really stupid risks. And in fairness too, and I'm, I'm putting this out there, not just for transparency, but also because it's a reminder of how my, my brain works as, as late as the Thursday before the FDIC took it over, I was still pondering buying shares of Silicon Valley bank when it dropped so precipitously that Thursday before the FDIC took it over, because I did not believe that Silicon Valley, that the depositors would run from it. I did not think that was what would happen. Obviously, we learned after the fact that it had already happened before that that Thursday was even finished. So I, I'll take credit. I, having, I'll take credit for talking you out of it. I just want to. Yeah, thank, I want thank that you. On the record, thank you, Jeff. Thank you. <laughs> so, needless to say, the FDIC took that took that off the off the table for me. But the the point is, is that having that really high level of risk tolerance can be useful as long as you have things there to keep you from letting it be a, a fatal flaw. The next part of it, again, these are things being able to grab out of the toolbox. I'm going to name off the banks here, NC Butterfield and Son, Live Oak Bank, Axos Financial, uh, uh, SoFi Technologies, and Central Pacific Financial. Those, those five, I was laser focused on, laser focused on adding to them on weakness, particularly Axos and and, and Live Oak Bank. So let's start with Live Oak Bank because I think it's a really good example of when these sort of temporary things happen. Like it's it's a great house in the best neighborhood that Silicon Valley Bank was in on fire, right? Was burning to the ground. But it also a completely different bank. Now it's their their catchphrase is is the America's small business for banks, right? Or I think that's where the America's America's bank, bank for, for small, small businesses. businesses right? And I think that's where probably the similarities, that's probably what hurt it the most, right? No it, doubt about it. Because it, it loaned because it loaned so much to small businesses. Yeah. That it which is, you know, exactly. the same idea as Silicon Valley, except you know, maybe those are more tech focused small businesses, but it was a lot of startups so, in Silicon Valley. So some startups, but really just small businesses and not companies necessarily that are trying to go public and going through all those, those things. Just, these are just small businesses, the small businesses that run America, the businesses that 
you know, your cousin and his brother found it, right? And and then they managed to grow it from like a single location, and now they have they have twenty, right, in a in a regional area. It's, it's like stuff like that that where they find like a vertical market that they like the economics of it. It's a profitable industry. It's growing. And they become, they like, they become the lender for that industry. They build it out. But here's the thing. Those are, that's on the asset side. That's on their lending side. This is a great business they've built. And oh, by the way, most of those loans, they're adjustable rate loans. So guess what's happening is interest rates are going up. The rates, those loans are, are, are adjusting up over the, you know, the past year or so. So their net income is increasing. Their interest income is increasing from their loan portfolio. The big difference, remember we were talking about where deposits sit on the balance sheet is liabilities. Live Oak Bank doesn't count on those small businesses as its depositors. That's something they're actually building out a little bit now, but that's not a, the big part of their business. It's 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 there, right? It's it's a thing. It's they want to provide banking, full service banking to to those, those, those businesses, right? Because that's when you get really sticky, right? It's when you have all those banking relationships, but the vast majority of their deposits now are from rate shoppers, people that are looking to, for that three-year CD that's paying the high yield or a high yield savings online. That's the majority of, of their deposits. Almost all of them are below, I think maybe 16% of their deposits are above FDIC limits. So again, the vast majority is below that really low risk of having a bank run. These aren't companies trying to make payroll with a half a million or a million dollars in the account. It's somebody that bought a two-year CD that's yielding three and a half percent or 4% or whatever, right? They're not going to pull it out because they don't want to pay the penalty to to pull it out before it matures and they don't need the money anyway. And it's insured. So they're not worried. So all of the risk factors are completely different. And I don't remember exactly how much it fell, but I think at one point it was down maybe close to half. And until I think today, I mean, it was still continuing to fall, even as other banks were starting to recover as like the, the fire started to go out to continue the metaphor. They, they seemed to keep struggling, which surprised me and a couple other people I, that we both know who are investors in Live Oak really were kind of scratching their heads as to why. But again, this sort of gets to my point that this is a bank that you and I both follow and know pretty well. And that w- that led to at least my confidence to 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 look at that bank in terms of like taking advantage of the situation. Yeah, that's the key. So you 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 have the knowledge going into it and you can act quickly. If you don't have that knowledge going into it, you don't know what to do without buying the house that's on fire. And that's the key. And as a as a difference between yourself and me, having followed the banking industry as long as I have and also not letting my bad call on Silicon Valley Bank caused me to freeze up and question everything. I was able to re- recognize my mistake and adjust my thesis for it, look at these other ones. And now those those five banks that I mentioned, they're they're 9% of my cost basis. And I'm I'm making money. I'm make I'm making money on all of them but SoFi because of some large investments that you know that one's come down a tremendous amount over the past year. But a dollar cost averaged into that. So all right. I think we've talked enough about this particular yeah, so let, so let's, as we were chatting about this over the last couple of days, one of the places, the conversation, and just so everyone knows, a lot of our podcast topics come from just us <laughs> BSing with each other about investing. And, and the place we went as we were talking through the banking situation was how it's ironic that we are right about the three-year anniversary right now of 
when everything, you know, really hit the fan with the pandemic. Like this so was we're, the We're week. recording this. Yeah, we're recording March, this on yeah. the 21st of March. Two days from now will be the bottom for the stock right. market. March 23rd. So it's like the three- the three-year anniversary of all that craziness. So you you and I went down a, a little bit of a trip down memory lane with our portfolios and what purchases we made back then. And it was humorous how different the two of us were at that point in our investing lives. But So we're going to have a little fun with hindsight bias here. And we're going to go back and see what decisions we made in March and April. So we're looking at March, April, and May. We figured like, let's, let's look at that three-month span, that quarter of a year, and talk through some of the decisions we made and the reasons we made them back when the the world was pretty scary. We really were at the very beginning of the pandemic. It was still the, you know, wash your groceries with Clorox wipes when you bring them home part of the pandemic, which we all kind of forget because that was the very early part. And it's, I'll start a little bit about, I'll start with talking through what I was doing because it's very different than what you were doing. So I went back and looked and I made some really smart, completely lucky uninformed purchases at the beginning of the pandemic, because at that point I was literally buying stocks five and ten dollars at a time because I had just started buying individual stocks. I was putting, you know, fifty dollars into a Robinhood account and just buying, you know, five dollars of this or ten dollars of that or whatever it was. So I have some really really nice cost bases from <laughs> March and April and May of 2020. Couple things that are up 150% since then. Unfortunately for me, they were, you know, a grand total of, you know, 500 bucks or something stupid like that. So, but I, as we were talking through it, I, I was conscious enough. And I think this is more my being at this point in my life versus being an investor for a really long time. I was thinking through like, okay, airlines, cruise lines. You know, these are things that are obvious. Disney, these are things that are obviously going to get hammered right now if as the world is shutting down, but not forever. So I did make some some purchases based on that thesis of like, okay, well, eventually people will go back to Disney World and eventually people will travel again. So I was at least a little bit aware of it, but nowhere near prepared for something like that as I would be now. And I didn't really understand how um, unprecedented the speed of that drop was. And then I really wasn't prepared for how unprecedented the recovery was too. So that's yeah, where well, my you know, head you was weren't alone, Jeff. Ago. You weren't, you weren't alone in that because I remember I was writing a lot for full for the Motley Fool back then on fool.com. And I remember when the first 13 F it's the filings for large investors that disclose their, their stock holdings and trades for each quarter. And when the 13, when Berkshire Hathaway's 13F came out for like that, this quarter we're talking about where the market bottomed and, and like at some point Buffett was talking to somebody and I think there were three or four like trading companies, Japanese trading companies, like their job is like bringing stuff into Japan, like an island's kind of resource starved and trying, like that was the big exciting thing he did. Ber- Berkshire did yeah, not do a damn thing that was exciting because the velocity, like you said, was so incredibly fast. To put that in perspective, Jeff, let's go back to the financial crisis. The market peaked in October of 2007. The bottom was in March of 2009. It was a year and a half from top to bottom. And from that 2007 peak to the market recovering was five and a half years. We recovered in like nine months. 
yeah, it was, you know, and I was so new that I would open my brokerage app and look and be like, oh, the market's down five, six percent today. I guess that's a thing that happens. But but it was like it's not. every day. It, it was like every day for three yeah. straight weeks in March, you know. And then and then the, on the up flip side, it was like, oh, the market's up five or six percent today. I guess that's a thing that happens. And it is, but not that many days in a row, not that much, you know, in one short amount of time. Um, so interestingly, when I went back and looked, and we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but it's just sort of funny. The only things I bought in April, May, and June of, I'm, I'm sorry, March, April, and May of 2020 that are not positive in positive territory today are Disney and Zoom. Right. Which Disney surprised me a little bit because I thought they had at least recovered back to that point by now. Zoom surprised me because I know I bought it before like the crazy run up, but I guess it was like on its way up enough and it had has come down so far since. But here we are three years later and those, those two investments of mine, granted five or $10 each, are, are not doing well compared to the market or just in terms of making money. So, um, you know, and again, none of that was smart on my part. I was mostly just blindly buying things I had heard of at that point. But what, what about you, Jason? When you go back and look at the things you bought those couple months in, in 2020, where, where do they stand now? Yeah, I, I actually, I bought Disney on March 5th. I bought a little bit of Disney, more than $5 worth, but I bought a little bit of Disney and it's, it's down like 15%, like actual down, down 15%. And it's trailed the market by about half, right? So you think about the opportunity cost of that as well. And it's really, and it's really important. And, you know, some other stocks that I'm a big fan of, like West uh, Walker and Dunlop has, has trailed the market. I've made money, but it's trailed the market. But then you start looking at some of the, some of the big winners from, from, from that period that just, just turned out so, so wonderfully buying a little bit of Kinsale capital, Ryman hospitality properties, right? We've talked about that one. I've, I've between four and seven bag, depending on the day that I, I, I kept buying and kept buying and kept buying that one for solar sevenfold returns, chart industries, sixfold returns, Ryman hospitality again, you know, just it's, it's remarkable how, how well so many of those investments that did. And, and I'll tell you, I've, I've sold some that I bought in that period that I'm not bringing up because it's on a different spreadsheet and I'm too lazy to go open it. That just that didn't that didn't do well. I bought some some offshore drillers, offshore oil drilling contracting companies during that period, and basically the whole industry ended up going bankrupt in the first half of 2020. So there there were, you know there were some mistakes, but the key here is in aggregate having the conviction to to know that this is the time to do it, and this isn't the time to trade around it, but this is the time to find those permanently good businesses, those durably good businesses that have the economic strength to get through this temporary problem. And it was really hard to think of a global pandemic in March and April of 2020, Jeff, as being a temporary problem. But it was right. a temporary problem. Even if it was a couple of years, it was a temporary problem. And I think what's interesting too is just listening to the companies you just listed, some of those were no brainer. Yes, this would be in impacted by the pandemic, like Ryman Hospitality Group, like they run hotels that that specialize in holding in-person conferences, right? So you knew that that was right. buying that then was a 
sort of similar to the way I was thinking about airlines, cruise lines, and Disney. Like this is going to be bad in the short term, but in the long run, they should recover. But some of the ones you mentioned really shouldn't have had like any direct impact to a pandemic, but that was the kind of market crash where everything fell, you know, other than things like Zoom and Clorox, (laughs) you know, like everything was getting dragged down, you know, so that, and that's, I think that this bank, just to kind of tie it back to the banking thing we saw in the last couple of weeks, it didn't really drag the market overall down too much, but you did see the the tentacles of the fire, the fire, and I'm mixing metaphors, pulled down more than it probably should have. And that's where being prepared for that kind of a thing can really be a benefit. So speaking of that, there will be another one of these. There will be something that happens at some point in the future that drags down either a few companies or a sector or the whole market. So what are the things that you keep in your toolbox at the ready so that the next time we see one of these things, you're ready to, to do something that's going to be good for your long-term wealth. So, so number one, it's it's understand what you own and understand what you're interested in. It absolutely has to start there because if you don't have that knowledge base, you're going to be chasing returns instead of knowing where to go. I think that's the most important thing to stress. The other thing, and this is the one where, Jeff, it's so important, and you and I having very different styles and approaches, I think is a good way to illustrate this, and that's having a strategy around cash and when and how you invest. For you, I want to speak for you, but you, you're you the guy that buys stocks every Wednesday, right? Usually that you, you buy once a week, you have a process, and almost every week you're buying something and you tend to stay fully invested. Me, I tend to build up to about 5% cash while I'm still regularly investing. Again, I'm in my mid forties. I'm adding money to my retirement accounts. My wife's adding to her accounts and we regularly invest it, but tend to keep around 5% cash in the portfolio for these opportunities. And, and then Jeff, you go crazy like a, like a, like a raccoon on meth. Yeah. Yeah. Not like a bear on cocaine, <laughs> like a raccoon on meth. Let's be clear with our <laughs> drugs and our, and our, and our animals. But no, I did. And, and this is, and, and part of it is like, I don't, I don't want to have more cash than that because then I just have a bunch of cash sitting around being unproductive. Now that conversation is starting to change. Tyler Crow and I actually did a video that was over on our YouTube channel talking about how people looking for dividend stocks right now, because they're looking for safety are running into all these stalwarts that are yielding like two and a half or 3%. They're way overvalued. And some of them like 3M, they might have to cut their dividends. And you know what? You, you can get four and a quarter percent from your money market account in your brokerage. So you can be like, you can be patient right now. You can have that cash and actually get something of value from it while you be picky or while, while you, while, while you wait for those opportunities. Right. So anyway, mm-hmm. 5% is just like the arbitrary number in my head that makes sense. And then when opportunities like this happen, I can kind of go wild. Right. And that's what I did. And I deployed a ton of cash and it happened to be the time of year when I make a large 401k contributions, like part of tax planning, all that kind of stuff. So now I've, de- I've deployed a bunch of that cash and I've built it back up with a, with a uh, contribution and okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to go hunting again. Yeah. And I, what's interesting is like, I, oh, this is a topic for another day, but I've been slightly tweaking my investing strategy over the past couple of months. And maybe that's something we could talk about on a future episode, but I have a strategy. Tweaking that's with Jeff. Not... <laughs> yeah, let's call it that. 
But like I, I have at times like over over the bear market we we sat through over the past couple of years, there were times where I just reached into the savings account, dumped a little bit extra money into the brokerage account, and and bought more than just my normal weekly thing because I you know I felt like this is everything's down. There's some stocks I really like that I think of are being unfairly punished here. So I do have a. It's funny as regular as my reg as my weekly buying is, I have a very. Uh, irregular way of deploying extra cash and you're sort of the other way around. So, but yeah, I think I agree with you whether I think having a cash strategy or a investing rhythm, I think is a helpful thing whenever some sort of crisis occurs. The biggest thing I, I, for me, and you said it, but it's like just knowing, knowing what you own, why you own it, or knowing really well the things that you don't yet own, but want to, and are just waiting for the right opportunity. Like, you know, had I been looking at a bank recently and hadn't bought it yet because I was whatever, maybe I thought it was overvalued, you know, you want to be ready for things like that. You know, any any stock can get, you know, knocked down 10, 15% after a bad earnings report or some sort of random downgrade by an analyst. And if you really know the company and you're just sort of waiting for it to be a little less expensive, those are the times you can jump and, and maybe get get what you're looking for. So to me, it's about you know, having that investing thesis. Yeah, because I think that that's that's also something. Again, to get back to something we mentioned earlier, is it's going to help you know what to run towards and what to run away from, right? Is I think that's that's really that's really important to to making this part of a successful process. And again, to me, this is like dessert or the appetizer, right? It's not the main course. The main course is what you do the ninety nine percent of the rest of the time where you find the good companies that meet your, whatever your measures are and you deploy your money, however you deploy it. And you, and you let all the hard work happen around you and, and in the background and you just kind of sit there being lazy to paraphrase Charlie Munger, but you prepare yourself so that when these rare opportunities do happen and they will happen whenever they're going to happen, but you're ready and you have the tool set, you have the mindset to, to act in the way that's going to kind of help you help you boost your returns. Yeah, and the mindset part is important. You have to know yourself as an investor. You have to know, you know, how you're going to react if you make the right decision, how you're going to react if you make the wrong decision. And that's where all the frameworks can kind of help. All right. Let's let's take a break here and hopefully for us someone will hear an ad and we'll continue the conversation when we come back after this break. Sounds good. Hey everybody, welcome back. Welcome back from that break. Hey Jeff, Guess what, buddy? What? I did a thing. You did a thing? I did a thing. <laughs> Tell me about it. I I officially have exited my position in Coinbase. Interesting. So I did a thing. It's a new segment we're trying today. And it's where one of us tells the other person for the first time with no preparation, something they interest they, they just did that's interesting. So you sold so this is interesting to me because you as recently as maybe a month or two ago, I've heard you be a, a pretty strong bull for Coinbase and make some, you know, strong statements about why you thought it was a good investment. So the first question I have for you is what changed your mind? Why did you sell Coinbase? So the interesting part about this is I'm not sure that anything has actually changed my mind. And let me, let me be clear with that. And, and the, the, let me lay out like the thesis for Coinbase and you know, I own a little bit of Bitcoin, a little bit of Ethereum. 
and, and and the reason why that's I own those, and the reason why on Coinbase is I'm still generally convinced that just like with the internet, and it took a ton of time, it took a lot of years and a lot of technology and a lot of innovation, basically to make the internet easy to use and kind of seamless before we like unlock its economic potential. I feel like with blockchain, it's going to be the same thing. The reality is like using any sort of crypto asset for anything useful today is a great big giant pain in the ass. It was the same thing trying to get, try. do you remember trying to get on the internet in 1993? Also a great big giant pain in the ass. It was difficult because yeah. cell phones really weren't a thing. There was one phone in the house and it was on the wall and you're, your modem and your computer plugged into that. So if your mom was talking to aunt Judy, you couldn't get on the internet. Right. Yeah. So until all of those things went away, the internet, inter, inter, we're, we're basically, we're in the same phase with, with cryptocurrency, Jeff. And my thesis for Coinbase in all of this is that while it counts on the, the trading platform today and those wonderful commissions as, as it's cash flow, as it's big cash driver, it's everything else that it's building kind of at enterprise scale and in the cloud for developing tools and building things to unlock the power of blockchain. Jacob Goldstein was talking about like, uh, you buy a house and you have to buy that stupid insurance, title insurance. Yeah, title insurance. If, if, if titles were just on the blockchain, that would not be a thing. You know, that would not be a thing. Right. And that's billions of dollars that consumers would save, right? I feel sorry for, I don't even feel sorry for the insurers. I'm going to be honest. I It's, the point is that I think there are lots of ways the blockchain has massive potential to do economic good. What has changed, frankly, is I, I made a couple of buys of, of, of Coinbase last year. It's been less than a year ago. Luckily, they're in retirement accounts, so I don't have to worry about short-term gains. But the, the, they've done really, really well. But we've also seen Coinbase's stock kind of get a little juicy here recently and I feel a little bit like it's the whole Bitcoin fixes this about this banking crisis, right? The whole idea we're starting to see all of that nonsense come back out about cryptocurrency being, you know, replacing money, right? And becoming money. And I think that's largely bullshit. I think we'll trade pieces of these either tokens or currencies. They'll be the economic means of exchange in the background, but we're still going to be talking dollars, right? Or, or, or Euro or whatever. They're just going to be the economic means of exchange sitting on top of a blockchain. And the blockchain is the value driver and the tools that are using the blockchain are going to be the value driver. And Coinbase is going to be really important in building that stuff. I think it has the potential. I've just steadily become less and less clear how long it's going to be before that happens. And looking at the fact that I've made money, with these Coinbase investments and being less certain in what their cash flows are going to look like over the next two or three or five years, that it just felt like now was the time to take a step back when I can do it profitably and really continue to focus on learning and letting things continue to develop without all of the crazy money that's flown into crypto from VC. And now crypto has kind of got to figure out what it's going to be on the money that, that's there. And this is one that I'm perfectly fine to, to wait for the stock to go up another 20 or 30 or 50% or triple and to become a meaningful business with 
kind of those permanent qualities that I don't think it has yet and then reinvest, you know, versus potentially, you know, walking away from, from, from good profits right now in an idea that I'm less certain on how it's going to, how it's going to play out. It's funny. One of the, one of the times we last talked about Coinbase and I forget if it was, might've been on the podcast or, or it was on a video that you and I did together. We were saying how in the long term, if they can figure out exactly how to be the go-to name for the value that you just described could be down the road, yeah. then you're right. You could get back in after it triples from here and probably still have gains after that, right? Because it could be that big of a Substantial gains, right. Right. And, and, it's, and then the other thing I was thinking is we recently got a question on a mailbag about when to, it was a question, a variety of when to sell. And the question was around like, if it becomes too big of your portfolio or part of the question was if the fundamentals get ahead of, or the price gets ahead of the fun to, fundamentals. And, and we talked about that, but that's what it sounds like this was for you, where you, you said to yourself, I, I still believe in the business. I'm not selling it because the thesis is broken. I'm selling it because again, the fire you ran towards was this possibly artificially inflated stock price because of money going into crypto as a as a response to yeah the banking the banking issues you said hey this looks like it shouldn't maybe it's a little bit overpriced at this at this point let me take some money off the table put it in something else that i think i'm also i also have high conviction in take my profits and keep an eye on it because if i'm right with my thesis i can get back in later and be fine yeah, and again, the key here. This is when, from last May to now. This is a business that has a ton of cap, billions in dollars of cash, free and clear on its balance sheet, and generated it from commissions, right? Trade trading commissions that generated it from its operations. So, like, that's the big part of the uncertainty now. Is like, what is the, what is the real, what the reversion to mean, right? What is what are the kind of trading fees, income that it's going to generate going forward? I think it's a lot less clear, right? So everything that you said, plus kind of, kind of honing in on that one thing. So Jeff, that is the thing, that is the thing that I did. So I know when I asked you, cause you, you did text me that you were thinking of doing this. I didn't know you actually pulled the trigger, but the question I asked was, what are you going to do with the money? And you said cash, which I told you was a cop out. Right. So I'm going to put you on the spot here and I'm going to ask you if you couldn't put it in cash, if you had to buy another stock with the proceeds from Coinbase, what, what's the top of your list right now? Just for fun. So I did, so I did two things, Jeff. I did a thing. You did another thing. And then I did another thing. So this I is a new most, segment we're calling, I did another thing. Right, right. It's a mini segment. We'll call it a sub segment. Okay. And I, most of it did go to cash, but I did add a little bit to a very similar business. They're basically the same thing. It's Walker and Dunlop. They're not the same thing. They're totally different. But I did buy a little bit of Walker and Dunlop. Interesting. We'll talk All about right. that. We'll talk about that next week, maybe, or we won't. All right. You'll have to tune well, in. Listen, next we, week to we find either out. we either will or we won't. Right. One of those two things. Right. Hey Jeff, we did it. We did it once again. All right, friends. As always, we'd love to answer, to give our answers to these hard questions, but it's up to you to find your own answers. You can do it. I continue to believe in each and every one of you. All right, Jeff. See you next time, buddy. See you next time.